Welcome to Fitness for Consumption. This is a podcast with a very unique view on all things related to fitness. I'm Dr. Paul Juris, kinesiologist, research scientist, performance coach, author, and innovator. I'm here with my co-host, motor learning and clinical specialist, Gregory Gordon. Together, we have over 50 years of practical and scientific experience in things relating to fitness, performance, and health. Join us as we share our stories and experiences and take a deep dive into essential fitness concepts and some highly complex issues too. Don't worry, we promise to keep it practical. And you know what else we promise? We're not here to tell you what to think or what to do. There's enough of that going around. We're here to offer you a different perspective on fitness based on something called human movement science. Spend some time with us and you'll think more critically about what people are telling you. You'll sort through it all and understand it more completely and you'll become self-empowered to make better decisions for you or for those with whom you're working. Are you ready? Let's get started. All right, welcome everybody to Fitness for Consumption. I am Paul Juris, and I'm here with my friend and co-host, Gregory Gordon. Gigi, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Um, looking forward to the conversation we're about to have. Yeah, and regarding the conversation, it's a very interesting topic that we're going to get into today. Actually, a few different things that we want to talk about. First of all, should we be enforcing movement models? Should we apply rules to the way people move mm -hmm. or should we let people self-organize? Another topic is how do we coach this? So deciding on, depending on what we want to do in these models, how do we coach in a way that promotes effective movement problem solving, right? Mm -hmm. And then if we're going to correct people, what are we correcting and why are we correcting it? So these are the topics that we're going to hit today. And to help us with that, we have a really special guest. Uh, so, Gigi, why don't you tell us about her? Yeah, so we're really excited to have Dr. Lori Quinn. Um, so just to give you a little bit of background on Dr. Lori Quinn. So she is a physical therapist. She is an associate professor of movement science at Teachers College, Columbia University, which, by the way, uh, I'm a graduate of and PJ here got his doctorate from. Um, she's also the director of the Neuro Rehab Research Lab there. And then um, her focuses are on developing guidelines and interventions for neurodegenerative diseases, uh, physical activity monitoring, and functional outcome measures for the intervention she's looking at. So an incredibly qualified guest. We're really excited to have her perspective on things related to fitness because, frankly, it's hard in the fitness world to sometimes have people with such an esteemed background and research to come and talk to us about things that uh, are meaningful to us in the fitness world. So we're really excited to have her perspective. Yeah, we're really fortunate to have her as well. So looking forward to this great episode. Hope everyone else is as well. And let's just jump right in. Awesome. So greetings, PJ and Dr. Quinn or Lori, as we'll call you for the remainder of this podcast. So Lori, it took me about five minutes to uh, do your introduction with all the accomplishments and credentials you have 
And so what I always find really fascinating um, in sort of cocktail party conversation is, you know, hearing your background, you know, one might assume that you were, you know, born in a research lab or something, but it's really interesting to get to know that there's actual, at one point you were just a person that didn't know anything about any of this stuff. And at some point you were intrigued to, you know, find the, the first uh, uh, chestnut or what do squirrels eat again? Acorn, acorn, the first acorn, that's the term. <laughs> so you found the first acorn and then that led you on the journey to where you are now. So would you mind sort of just walking us through your journey and how you got to where you are now? Um, sure, sure. Yeah. And I thank you both for having me and I'm, I'm really um, excited to, to have this conversation today. So my journey, um, you know, I, uh, my, my husband will always make fun of me because I was sort of one of those people who knew that I wanted to be a physical therapist from the time I was pretty young, probably certainly in my early teens. Um, I just had one of these experiences. My grandmother broke her hip. She went to physical therapy and I just kind of fell in love with the profession. And, and that was it. I uh, I think I was also maybe born a lucky in that uh, I, I was the last class at the University of Connecticut um, where you were able to get a physical therapy degree as a bachelor's degree. So that is w long gone now. Um, so everyone has to get their um, doctorate and it's usually six to seven years of, of schooling post, post high school. So I graduated at the age of 21 as a practicing physical therapist. Mm. Um, and I immediately was attracted to neuro. So in, in physical therapy, there's sort of these different tracks and, and, and I really enjoyed working with people with neurological conditions. Um, so, you know, stroke and spinal cord injury and brain injury. Um, but pretty quickly I realized, uh, you know, why we needed more education as a profession because there was way more that I needed to know in, in getting out there. I, I realized what, uh, um, you know, just really a, a lack of, of knowledge. Um, I was really interested in research and doing clinical research. So I was, I was always trying to look at patients and trying to figure out what their problems were and how to measure outcomes, how to document properly. Um, and so I decided to go back and get my master's degree. And at the time I was living at New, in New Jersey, I worked for Kessler Rehabilitation, which is a great rehab um, facility. And I ended up leaving there and going uh, full-time at Teachers College to get my master's degree in the motor learning program. And that, um, yeah, that literally changed everything. So I was lucky enough to study under Dr. Ann Gentile, um, who, and, and, and a big part of my, um, my time at Teachers College as a graduate student was the um, other um, students who I was was interacting with at the time. It was, I think, a really unique time to be there. Um, you know, I came in 1991, but mm -hmm. pretty much from the 80s and 90s, there was an influx of, of therapists and um, other people interested in movement, um, you know, from coaches and trainers and, and biomechanists who were starting to look at things very differently and really taking the research in motor learning um, and applying it to either clinical populations or, um, you know, sports or, or, or other, other translational sciences. And I, um, I just felt so lucky to be involved with, with the group that was there. So we, 
um, tried to take the teachings of, of Anne Gentile and the really wider motor control and motor learning concepts and apply them to our areas of practice, which were also very diverse. Mm -hmm. So while I was interested in neuro, there was other people, again, who were interested in sports, who were interested in musculoskeletal, and uh, we learned a lot from each other, and it was a really challenging and, and interactive time. And so, so that started my journey, and I, um, I worked in Huntington's disease then, and, and that sort of took off that area of research. Um, and then kind of, you know, I mean, there's a long history, but I sort of moved to London and did, you know, oh, some research, research work there. Um, and, and now I've, I've come back and five years ago, I was lucky enough, there was a position open Anne's actual teaching position was, was came, came available. Um, and I was lucky enough to, to take that position. And so now I'm literally sitting at her desk. Oh, wow. uh, feeling, you know, in, in awe most days that am I living up to, to her <laughs> ex expectations? And I know she's looking down on me, um, a lot and I hear her voice constantly and I'm sure I'm going to be referring to her a lot in the, in the podcast today. Awesome. PJ, you have a connection to Dr. Ann Gentile as well, right? Oh, geez. Yeah. So I think we, we actually crossed paths at teacher's college. I was finishing my doctorate in 93. So, and, and to your point about people with diverse backgrounds, I was one of those sports oriented people. So I came from a graduate program at UMass Amherst, which was pretty much sports focused and performance focused and got into TC and it was very much physical therapy and occupational therapy focused. And at, at first I was in shock and, and I didn't know what to do. And then I sort of calmed down and settled in and realized that I had a lot to learn from some very, very bright and talented people. And, you know, Anne for me was sort of a double-edged sword. I learned so much from her, but I was also scared to death of her. So it was one of those situations where, I, you know, I loved being around her and I hated being around her. So, um, but I don't think they could have filled her chair with a better qualified person. So I'm, I'm thrilled that you're there. And, you know, you made a, a comment about more education as a profession, and you're talking about that in terms of physical therapy. And here we are working predominantly in the fitness industry. Um, and to say that there's a dearth of education in fitness mm -hmm. is an understatement, mm -hmm. to be sure. If you need more in, in physical therapy, then we need lots and lots more in the fitness industry. So, you know, maybe with that... Um, I can start off with our first question and, you know, we can get right into this. Um, there's this sort of habit or process in the fitness industry whereby people are given a movement model. The trainers are taught to look at movement in the sense of having a model to follow or having rules to apply. As an example, once I did a, a just a YouTube search on lunges. And if you do that, you'll see that there are like a thousand YouTube videos come up all purporting to show you the correct model, correct form, correct way to do lunges. And, you know, it, it dawned on me that we're potentially getting all these trainers to think from a rules perspective of it. This is how people are supposed to move. And, you know, I'm wondering if you could speak to this, like, is there a correct form? Is there a model? 
is there something that we should be looking at as opposed to looking at the individual and how they may create that movement for themselves or self-organization of movement? So let me just pause there for a second and, you know, give you a chance to think about that and, and answer no, that. No, look, this is, a, this is a great question and one that we are grappling with in the physical therapy and occupational therapy community as well. Um, so the way that I like to think about this is focusing on the concept of movement analysis, right? I feel like the core underpinnings of uh, anyone who cares ab about movement, you know, we could just say kinesiologists or people who are interested in just sort of the study of human movement, regardless of what their um, specific area of practice or work is, movement analysis is the underpinning of that, right? Watching how people move and being able to um, understand what the movement, potentially movement abnormalities are. But the minute that you say that you are down such a slippery slope, because the minute that you say that there is a movement abnormality that does not to con conform to a certain rule or a certain set of structures about how we know, quote unquote, people move normally or typically, then you are automatically focused on an intervention that is meant to correct that movement abnormality, right? And to make people more normal or more typical. Um, there's been so much research on uh, movement analysis of various um, uh, various movements, like sit to stand is a perfect example, right? We know some of the key underpinnings of coming from sit to stand um, about weight shift and propelling the body forward and the different phases of movement. Same thing with gait analysis, right? probably hundreds of thousands of studies on, on gait analysis. But what we what is really important with all of those is that there is also incredible variability within individual performance. And the range of what we call quote unquote normal is so vast and diverse. So what we have tried to do and some of the work that I've been doing with the um, Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapists, we've been spending literally the past four years on trying to come up with a framework for movement analysis. It is not about trying to identify um, specific abnormalities that you are going to exactly treat, but to be able to understand in a really holistic way, both within a task and taking into consideration um, the environmental influences and the individual differences, the differences of the performer, right? That sort of comes back to Newell's sort of basic, the task performer in the environment, but trying to understand in some basic constructs where the movement system might be, where the movements might be breaking down. The, the intervention, what you do about that, I think we can talk about that next, but I think getting this down right is so important about how we analyze movement. So if we're spending our time, let's just say gait analysis, right? If we spend our time on the details of the, you know, the way that the hip and the knee move and a lot of the real, um, I think, specific kinematic details of movement or even looking at a muscular level, um, that is, I think, where we get into a lot of trouble because trying to do an intervention at that level I think is almost always unsuccessful. I think it's really, really difficult to do. But if we sort of back up and look at strategies, I think another big concept is that people are make choices about how they move. They may or may not always be conscious, but people make choices, their strategies for movement. And so sometimes making them 
aware of how they move versus telling them what to do. Like, do you know that you're moving this way? You know, using video feedback, using, you know, mirrors, uh, giving them, you know, just telling them about how they're moving versus instructing them how to move versus you being the one to make the decision about how they should move differently. To me, that's kind of a big overriding concept. And we try to frame our movement analysis in such a way so that it's very broad based. Are they getting the idea of the initiation, uh, you know, execution and termination of the movement? Are there specific, you know, um, components of the movement that are present? But then within that, really thinking about how we might let the patient or the individual solve their own problem. So um, I'll sort of stop there. <laughs> well, that's Thank you. That's an amazing answer to that. So you mentioned something that I, I'd like to talk a little further on, and you said it near the end, which is framing. And I that really resonates with me because I think whether you're in the fitness industry or you're a physical therapist or occupational therapist, but any of us, like we would like to have our patients or clients to have a degree of self-agency. And so one of the things that concerns me a bit about is that when we use this term corrective or solving a problem, you know, to a certain individual. So I, you know, I subscribe to a biopsychosocial framework in terms of the way I look at the human body. And so on a psychological level, if we're framing things that there's always a problem as opposed to just sort of you know, maybe showing some other forms of feedback, you know, that can rob someone of self-agency if they feel like, you know, there's this they are flawed and, you know, if they try to do things on their own, uh, they might be exposing themselves to injury. Yeah. I mean, I like some of those concepts um, and this concepts of, of, of independence and choice, right? There's a lot of literature about just choosing, you know, giving people two choices about mm -hmm. something that they, you know, whether it's how they, how they receive feedback um, how they get information from 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 a coach or a trainer, um, and I think that's a really important point about self agency. You know, we need to give the power back to our patients and the clients that we work with. Um, you know, I, one of the things that I've started uh, doing now when I see a new new patient or client is, how can I help you? Um, starting off with the question of like, what, what is it that's your problem, right? What's your concern um, versus me being the expert, you know, and in physical therapists, it's funny, we've, I've been really talking a lot about the term coach, that, phys, hmm. that therapists should, should be more coaches. Interesting. Um, and Anne would, would talk about this all the time, you know, with some of her, her little pearls of wisdom were things like, you know, shut up and take your hands off the patient. You know, um, we would always talk too much and say that we could facilitate them and have our hands in a certain way. We spent a lot of time talking to patients really at them. And look, therapists have evolved and really, really changed. But I think we're now getting into a lot of, of the nuances. And I think this concept of self-agency and choice and, and what Anne would call the patient as an active learner, you know, mm -hmm. that we are every patient, no matter really at what level they are at, they are active learners and we are facilitating their learning. And we have to use the concepts that are really cut across 
neuroscience. That's the beauty, I think, of our field. It really cuts across psychology, yeah. you know, neuroscience, um, you know, sociology even, um, and, and really use a lot of those to be able to, I think, promote this concept of a patient as an active learner. Yeah, and I think we could certainly extend this beyond patients to, you know, people in fitness facilities, people who are looking to improve their health and wellness. Uh, you know, in a previous episode, we talked about cognitive substrates and, and, and how the first challenge for anyone in doing or performing a movement is understanding what it is they're supposed to do in the first place. And I think so many of us are conditioned to explaining all of it. So the trainers have to feel self-empowered and the way they self-empower is by providing all the information and explaining every little detail. And by the way, expecting that their client will perform it perfectly because that is an indication of how good they are as a trainer when they can give their client some information or, or tons of information and have them do something perfectly, then the question is, what does it mean to do something perfectly? And should we even be striving for perfection? Yeah, well, what, what is perfect, you know? I mean, who's, who's, <laughs> whose definition of, of perfect are you talking about? That it really reminds me of a couple of things, the um, you know, stages of learning, right? And just kind of what happens in the early stages of learning and the cognitive processes that are involved. And, and related to that is this idea of getting the idea of the movement, right? That in the early stages, you should be, it should be exploratory, it should be making a lot of mistakes, it should be high degrees of variability, and there should be no perfection. But even at that highest level, at the high level of, of skill attainment, whether it's within rehabilitation or at sports levels, that highest level of team. And we have some, some work that was recently done by one of our graduate students in rowing, Nick Parker. Um, I mean, there's a, still quite a, a high level of variability in mo motor performance in elite rowers um, who in theory, are, and they're, they're in boats where they're working together that's a really it's a really fascinating area to explore because you know you've got four or eight people in a boat that need to coordinate their movements in such a way so that the boat you know moves as smoothly and as efficiently as, po as possible um, but within that everybody's doing it a slightly different way in terms of force pro profiles and certainly in terms of, of kinematics there is no real one what right way to to perform that and that i found uh really fascinating as as and obviously there's much more variability in the early stages of of rowers than there is in the later stages of, of rowing you definitely get that um decrease in variability but there are still individual variances and that's what makes i think coaching and training and therapy really fascinating because it's so much those individual differences that we have to really I think, try to create frameworks for, for understanding. This is a really refreshing concept, and it does change the way we should think about interacting with our clients, right? So let's relax the rules a little and give people, whether novices or skilled movers, more leeway to explore movement. And I think the question now is how and under what conditions we do this, and we'll get into that in just a minute.
what I'm hoping is reassuring to anyone that's just an exerciser at home or a trainer is that, you know, both of what you guys are talking about is sort of uh, this idea that movements don't have to be perfect to be effective. And so speaking as a trainer, um, I know the balance act of you want to make sure that when you're look. first of all, as PJ mentioned in the beginning, you, you come into this thing learning these rules and the lunge is a perfect example. If you look at a thousand YouTube lunge videos, 90, 999 of them are going to say the knee cannot move past the toe. And PJ has done a lot of research in that area. Maybe we'll bring it up later. But it's just this hard and fast rule. And no one, and by the way, if you ask someone why, there's very questionable evidence as to why you shouldn't do it. It's just a rule and you just have to accept it. And frankly, for years when I started as a trainer, I did. I just knew. And so the balance act is always that you hopefully, you know, you want to be ethical about your job and you want to make sure that someone is doing this safely. And B, you want to make sure that you look like you're in, that you are engaged and you come across as engaged and you're looking at things with a fine tooth comb because that's why they're paying you. Um, but the other side of that coin is that there's this, we can certainly overcorrect as well in terms of too much feedback um, and intervening in places where like maybe they're like, this is not really a problem that needs to be solved. So I'd just be curious from both of you guys, like, so if, what are some of the ways we should go about even figuring out when there is a time to intervene and when there's a time to just watch and observe and how do you, how would each of you measure that? Okay. So I, I will say this, I feel like there's a difference between observing movement and correcting it within tasks and normal movements and within quote unquote exercises. Mm -hmm. Is, is that what you, I mean, because when I think about something like the squat, right. And doing a squat kind of quote unquote, the right way, uh, you know, Paul, I'm probably going to defer to you on this. I mean, there are, again, general gists of how you're supposed, in theory, supposed to do squats, mm -hmm. some basic mechanics of it, right? Mm -hmm. To be able to get the um, muscles to fire appropriately and to have the most, I guess, effective means of strengthening, right? Because it's a, for it's a form of strengthening. But it's, I think the feedback and the information that you might give while I think there's going to be some parallels is very different than what you're going to give for, um, you know, sort of everyday tasks, right? Of people walking around, moving around in their day-to-day -day environment, going upstairs, or even performing a sports task uh, and activity. Do you, I mean, I'm going to put it to you guys. Do you think that there's a, a difference in those two, uh, you know, so, so, sort of exercise versus tasks? PJ, I'll let you go first on this one. Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. And I think maybe the immediate conventional response to that would be, well, sure, they're different. You know, there's a difference between a squat and uh, throwing a football or, you know, shooting a basketball. But the way I look at it, the only difference is in the movement goal because the organization of the movement in order to accomplish the goal is done internally. You know, what? here's, here's where, it, squat's a great example actually, because this is one of those exercises that has very strict rules applied to it. And when people coach it, I mean, I've heard 
five minutes of instruction before the person ever gets an opportunity to do the thing. And then while they're doing it, the trainer or the coach is constantly chirping in their ear and reinforcing this and that. And all I say when someone's doing a squat is keep your weight centered over your feet, lower yourself toward the ground, keep your weight right over the instep of your feet, push down into the ground, come back to a standing position and let them Mm -hmm. organize the rest of the movement Mm -hmm. on their own. Right. So I could say a very similar thing about shooting a basketball. If I'm at the free throw line and I'm going to shoot a basketball, my instruction to them is you've got to release the ball at a point above your head so that it gets into the basket. Now you organize the rest of that yourself. And it's this whole notion of self-organization and individual differences that allows people to be successful. But I think when we impose these rules on them, it actually limits success. Um, and I just wanted to have one, I had one comment about the, the rowing uh, story that you mentioned, Lori. I think that was really fascinating about the variability of the crew. If I'm not mistaken, as people develop skill, uh, initially they're highly variable and then they reduce their variability. But then as they get more and more skilled, they actually increase their variability mm-hmm which makes them more flexible problem solvers, right? Yeah, no, that's exactly it. And, you know, in his study, he looked at um, sort of novice versus elite and not sort of along that continuum. But I think that's, I think that's exactly right. Look, we need to have variability in order to be able to uh, adapt to changes in the environment. So uh, look, I want to come back to this point about the goal of the task. I think that is the exact Point. And I loved your examples of uh, the, 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 the verbal information, right? You're not giving them instructions. You're not telling them how to do certain things. And you're not even, I mean, to a degree, you're focusing an individual on what the key aspects of the movement are, but it's, it's external to the individual, right? It's about the relationship of that person and their body to the environment. And that's a huge part of what um, I think a lot of motor learning concepts talk about, and certainly what Anne has always professed, you know, and is really the critical importance of the environment. But the goal is so essential. And when we make the movement the goal is when I think we run into a lot of issues. So in a, in a, a squat, when we're focusing on the, the movement, the, almost the, the kinematics, the internal components of the movement, then that is where the focus of attention is naturally drawn for the patient. And then they lose, I think, sight of what the kind of bigger picture of the task is. And so exercises, and the reason I kind of brought that up is because I think um, there's a huge um, opportunity and potential to work within task-specific training. Um, I think exercises are you know, essential, um, but I almost sometimes wonder if they're over, overused. If we, you know, I think about this with walking all the time, you know, we watch someone walk and we say, oh, they're, 
internally rotating, you know, their hip or they're, you know, going into recurvatum or whatever it might be. And then we work, we take that and we say, okay, that must mean that they've got weakness here and like lack of range of motion here. So let's go off and do these exercises and kind of hope it transfers over into the task of walking. But the real skill, and this is within physical therapy, and I think it must apply within coaching and training, is to work within the tasks, to be able to, um, I think, improve awareness. I do want to talk about sensory feedback at some point, but improve awareness and understanding of how they're moving and helping them to solve their problems within their own bodies, but within the tasks that are meaningful to them and that they need to be working on. And I think that's got to be within sports, obviously, as well as it is with basic movement tasks that people do. Yeah, I agree. And I'm going to bring up a term that I learned from PJ many, many moons ago when I first heard him give a lecture at this uh, certification I was doing. And it's bandwidth of error. So what we're talking about is really that, you know, look, there for a squat, for a basketball, free throw, for gait. So we have, there's a certain kinematic um, organization that when you see someone do this skill effectively, they're, they fall within these general boundaries. And so one of the interesting things about bandwidth of error to me is that, A, again, I hope that anyone that's exercising or anyone that's coaching someone in any form of exercise, whether it's sports or fitness, um, just this makes them feel at ease that, you know, there's a, there's a certain there's a, a basic shape we might be looking for, but there's a lot of variability within that certain shape. And then it's also about wearing, it depends on the hat you're wearing. So ultimately, like in my bandwidth, so I see people in my office where I'm doing manual muscle testing and treatment. And then I also see people in the gym. So my bandwidth of error extends only to the point that if I see them doing something and I either have prior clinical information that I know the way they're moving is, a, is you know, putting stress on a joint in a certain way that I know is vulnerable. So that's a specific bandwidth of error for that person, for this specific thing. Um, but if I'm just watching them move um, and I have, you know, they're not moving in a way that to me suggests that they're really predisposing themselves to an injury, then my bandwidth of error, assuming they're accomplishing their goal, is going to be much wider. And I think it's a, it's a really empowering message to all of us just to free us up to, to move without, um, I feel like the, that the idea of all of us of, uh, that we have, you know, um, multiple issues and we've got to like treat exercise sometimes like mothers find China, um, is preventing a lot of people from, you know, really coming even close to optimizing what their their capabilities could be. Yeah, I love that concept of bandwidth of error. Um, you know, I think that certainly comes from a lot of the research that has been done in motor learning, where you allow you just allow a certain level of, you know, error of movement movement abnormalities, right? And you you are not um, you know, constantly giving feedback. It's also about the, you know, the rate at which you give feedback, whether we give it a hundred percent of the time or 50% of the time, you know, again, it's just all the concepts around that are allowing the problem solving and allowing that patient as an active learner. And the bandwidth concept 
with re both with I think mainly with regards to 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 augmented feedback, right? Information that we give give to the patient, I think can be really essential to get them uh, to help them to understand their own make use of their own internal feedback. Right. So this concept of feedback is really fascinating because feedback in the motor control models really just comes from the person's own internal sense of their feedback. Right. So like their proprioceptive information, you know, kinesthesia, uh, tactile information, use of visual information. There's tons of ways auditory that patients or individuals get their own sources of information. But it's not perfect and we need mirrors we need coaches we need other people to help us to see things you know um that we can't see ourselves but it is in exactly in how we provide that information to augment feed you know it's called you know augmented feedback right providing additional information but in within that we have to be i think there there has to be a more systematic approach to it. And um, it's one of the things we've been thinking a lot about, you know, we talk about fading feedback, right? Providing bandwidth feedback, um, uh, providing feedback um, only, uh, you know, at a certain time in the learning process and certain kinds of feedback, all the things we've really been talking about, but we don't have a good model or a good framework for how to provide this level of feedback. Mm -hmm. and, and talking to to people and patients is one of the things we spend all of our time doing, but yet we don't have a really good understanding of, ex of, of uh, our own internal model of how we should be providing that feedback. Now, in terms of how we apply feedback, one of the things that we've done over the years is to help trainers understand that while someone is in the middle of something, while they're doing their exercise or they're doing a, spe a specific goal-oriented motion uh, to shut up and not say anything, right? The only time we want people talking to the client or the performer is either some just basic background encouragement, come on, you can do this, so that they don't have to process that information, um, or if they think they're doing something that puts them in imminent risk. Otherwise, let them do it, let them work it out and let them try to solve the problem and don't worry if it's not perfect. You know, I had a conversation once with one of the NASM instructors and I just asked them a simple question. I said, why is it that when you see someone perform a movement in a way that you didn't expect or that doesn't fit your model, why do you assume it's automatically wrong and why do you assume they automatically have some type of physical problem and he said i don't know <laughs> like you're the honest. instructor and you don't know i mean yeah i'm glad he was honest but come on i mean we're out there telling people this is how we do it and they don't really understand what that means this is how like what what are, what are we trying to get people yeah. to do you know and and i think empowering people to solve problems through movement is probably the most important thing we can do. And we're actually taking that power away from them by insisting on their compliance with this form that we all expect to be the right form. Hey, everybody. We really hope you're enjoying this conversation with Dr. Lori Quinn. In part two of this episode, We'll continue our discussion on movement error and dive a bit deeper into some really interesting motor learning and control concepts. 
So be sure to look for part two of Whose Movement Is It Anyway? In the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. So please drop us a comment at our Facebook, Fitness for Consumption. On our Instagram, you can get us at Fitness for Consumption or at our website, fitnessforconsumption.com. And let us know what you're thinking. Let us know the questions you have. Let us know topics you would like us to cover. Who knows? Maybe you'll have an opportunity to be our next guest. So we hope you're enjoying the podcast and we'll hope to speak to you soon.